almost every day it felt like I was doing calculations. If it goes up this much, I'll make this much money. Or if it goes up this much, I'll make this much. I constantly was making those calculations in my head while I was driving around to do my sales calls, just sitting in my office, things like that. I, I mean, it really got to me mentally. So Robin Hood was living rent-free in your head. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Pretty much. From Ramsey Network, this is The Fine Print, a show where we talk about the hidden truths that are keeping you broke. I'm George Camel, and this week we're talking about one of the hottest trends out there. Nope, not TikTok dance challenges. I'm talking about investing apps, especially the ones focused on micro-investing and DIY investing. According to Ramsey Solutions Research, 29% of people used a DIY investing platform in the last year. And that same research found that 40% are extremely likely to invest money on a DIY investing platform next year. Now, if you're not hip to the lingo, DIY stands for do it yourself. That's right. You no longer need a middleman to jump into the stock market. You don't even need a computer. Heck, you don't even need a bunch of money. All you need is a smartphone and a whole bunch of risk tolerance. In 2021, anyone and their mom can get in on the stock market for as little as $1 and make trades for free. And with that low barrier to entry comes a whole slew of people wanting to ride the gravy train to wealthy town. Sounds great, doesn't it? Well, much to the chagrin of Smash Mouth, all that glitters may not in fact be gold. In today's episode, we're going to explain the fine print behind these investing apps that have democratized investing for the rest of us. And by the end, Hopefully, you'll figure out if these investing apps are worth your time and money. Before we get to that, let's take a trip back in time. In the dark ages, before the internet, there wasn't a whole lot of options for people to invest in the stock market. If you wanted to trade stocks, you needed to use a stock broker. These are people who had access to the price of the stocks and the ability to make trades. As an investor, you would pay fees and commission to the broker for this service based on the cost of the transaction. And the broker and the investor would communicate the details of their deal by using an old communication device known as the landline telephone. Ah, simpler times. In those days, most brokers required a minimum balance to work with an investor, so not everyone was able to trade stocks, which meant the average person could not get in on this. It was like an exclusive country club for the elite and the wealthy. And in 1980, just 13.5% of Americans owned stocks. Then in the 90s, the internet came around and linked us all together on the World Wide Web. Through companies like E-Trade, TD Ameritrade, and Charles Schwab, Gen Xers could trade stocks online without having to use a broker. The internet also gave the everyday investor access to information that was previously reserved for the fancy people on Wall Street. And because the internet helped streamline the investment process and you no longer needed a broker, the cost of making a trade went way down. Instead of a percentage of the purchase price, you could make a trade for a flat fee of 5 to 10 bucks per trade. But you still had to have a minimum account balance, usually between $500 to $2,500, to be allowed to make trades. So there was still an obstacle for the everyday person jumping on board. By the year 2000, almost 55% of Americans owned some sort of stock. Now, fast forward to 2014, when the investing app Robinhood appeared in the App Store. This new trading platform was aimed at millennial and Gen Z investors. And here's the crazy part. There was no fee to trade stocks and no minimum balance. Anyone over 18 could sign up and start investing within minutes. 
Robinhood also allowed investors to buy fractional shares. This is super important because not everyone can afford a full share of Amazon stock, which is currently trading at over $3,500 per share. But with fractional shares, you can get in the game with as little as one one millionth of a share. Pretty rad. The only way Robinhood could make it more enticing to sign up is to give away free money, which they kind of do. If you create an account, link your bank to it, and meet the promotion requirements, Robinhood will give you a free share of stock. The catch is, according to Robinhood's website, the stock is chosen at random and has a 98% chance of having a value between $250 and $10. That means there's only a 2% chance of the stock bonus being over $10. Not quite life-changing, but hey, it's the thought that counts. And Robinhood's not alone in this mission of making investing easier and more accessible to millions of Americans. You've probably heard about other apps focused on micro-investing, robo-investing, and DIY investing. Apps like M1 Finance, Stash, Betterment, and Acorns. So this story is mostly rainbows and sunshine so far. We've gotten rid of the country club vibe that investing used to be, and now all it takes to buy and sell stocks is to download an app, enter your information, and link your bank account. Plus, it's all basically free. Or is it? How are these companies making money? And are the investing options that they offer on these apps worth the risk? Can you and I really win in the same financial marketplace alongside investing pros who live and breathe this stuff all day? These are the questions you should be asking. So to figure out why these apps have exploded in popularity and what the risks might be, I talked to Kate Rooney. She's a journalist and technology reporter for CNBC who's been reporting on Robinhood and financial technology for years and years. And let me tell you, she was a wealth of knowledge when it comes to investing apps. Pun very much intended. Kate, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. How are you? I'm great, George. Thank you so much for having me. So you have been digging in to so many things in the technology world and the financial world for your work with CNBC. You talked to many of Robinhood's customers. What kind of conversations did you have as you were talking to them about why they started using Robinhood and what they were trying to get out of it? So first, it's, it's familiar. It's mobile first. It's something that you could download, try to use, and you you just get it instinctively. It makes sense. And it's it's colorful. It's easy to use. It just buying your first stock is easy. They they give you a free stock when you sign up. So I think the it's not as intimidating as it might be on another app. So I think that's that's the main takeaway is that someone who's younger and who really is used to using your phone for most things just gets it immediately. And so I think that's people really do like the interface and the engagement numbers for this company in particular are just way higher than any anything else in finance. It's really comparable to almost a social media app, the way that people use it. And that's the other thing, that people use it almost as they check it multiple times a day. They are logging on to check their portfolio in a way that any other app just hasn't seen. And there's something about it that's ridiculously sticky. And it's, it's kind of like you check Instagram, you check your email, you check your text, and you check your Robinhood portfolio. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Is part of that due to uh, the influx of cryptocurrency and that trading 24-7? And that means your portfolio is moving 24 hours a day. Oh, yeah. I think the volatility of something like Bitcoin or even Dogecoin, you saw that earlier this year, any sort of viral event has really helped Robinhood and, and helped the growth numbers. And you've seen it in kind of the weeks and months afterwards. 
Same thing happened with Dogecoin. If you remember, Elon Musk started tweeting about Dogecoin. It was very much part of the mainstream conversation. And Robinhood happened to offer Dogecoin at the time. They saw a massive uptick in users' engagement and revenue, actually, when they reported earnings. They mentioned Dogecoin by name and said that that really was a bump for them in terms of their cryptocurrency trading business. So the volatility of these stocks, anything volatile, trading, no matter what, helps Robinhood's bottom line. Uh, So it's sort of a flavor of the week situation, whatever users are interested in, whatever's the most volatile, entertaining, or moving the most seems to be what people are trading. Interesting. So you mentioned uh, Robinhood making money. In the early stages, Robinhood stood out because, and this may be a reason people were flocking to them, they didn't charge a commission. It was kind of this no-fee model, but we know there's no such thing as a free lunch. So can you explain how Robinhood actually does make money? Yeah, yeah. So now this is sort of industry standard. Like you said, they were the first ones to do this, but they have never charged commissions for trading. It used to be you know, five or six dollars to to make a trade, which now being people that have gotten into the markets this year and trade for free, I think would balk at and say, "Oh man, that's that seems like a lot." And it was even more before that. So you you saw this sort of fee war in the industry already breaking out of brokerage firms just going, you know, ten cents lower, a dollar lower, and fighting over this. Robinhood comes in with no fees, and that was sort of how they stood out in the beginning. But the way that they do make money is called payment for order flow. So it's on the back end. When you make a trade, it's a little bit more complicated than it looks. I mean, something like Robinhood looks extremely sleek and easy to use. Robinhood is batching all these orders and sending them to what are called market makers. And sort of it's this back end arrangement. And they're required by their regulators to still find the best price, which is called best execution. So the criticism of that has been that it's not transparent that they're making money off of the customer and that they make more money the more people trade so that they might be incentivized to want people to trade more so they make more money. Interesting. So is it, I mean, is the price kind of built into the stock in a sense? Because if I'm paying a dollar for a stock and that's the true cost, then how is Robinhood making money off of that dollar? So it's regardless of the the stock price. You could be trading Tesla, you could be trading Disney. It's the same for every stock. It's a it's a small fraction and it's um yeah, they they basically get paid I mean pennies. But the thing about Robinhood and why a lot of the market makers like to work with Robinhood is because they have a very active trader base. And so the people using Robinhood tend to trade more than the people maybe using Vanguard or Charles Schwab or Fidelity. Yeah, there's I mean millions upon millions. I think last I saw it, they were at about 30 million users. I don't know how many of those are actively trading every day, but I mean even a portion of that, that's a lot of money when you're talking about even fractions of a dollar. It is, and it's how the company makes the majority of their revenue, and that's what people after Robinhood went public, that was one of the things the analysts were saying that could be a downside is hey, they're really concentrated to this one way of making money and saying, okay, payment for order flow is really their bread and butter. Meanwhile, regulators are looking at it and they are considering looking into it. And Robinhood has said, we could survive without it. We'd have to find alternative revenue streams. And that might include something like a subscription, uh, but it is very, very important to their business. Yeah. 
So Robinhood's marketing message is that they democratize finance for all. But the critics say that the app is gamified. And a few weeks ago, you interviewed Robinhood's chief product officer, and you asked about this, about the gamification. And the chief product officer pushed back and said the app was not gamified, but instead designed for visual learners and intuitive. So can you tell me more about the conversation that you had and the sensitivity around it being called gamified? Sure. So Aparna Chenapragada is the chief product officer at Robinhood. She came from Google, so very much a Silicon Valley veteran and not from the Wall Street side. And I was asking her about building these products in a way that, in the same way that Google would want to think about a product. And they think about it as being mobile first, user-friendly, and something that people want to go and use and, and that has a great interface and and really similar to a product that you'd build in Silicon Valley. For Robinhood, the word gamified has come up. There's been regulators, uh, the state of Massachusetts has really gone after them saying, using the word gamification. Robinhood has pushed back saying, you guys don't get it. This is how people interact with everything. It's the future and sort of painted them as the old guard and saying that they're sort of out of touch and saying, okay, well, what's wrong with making it mobile-friendly and and user-friendly. So that was her point, that they're trying to meet people where they are. And the other point is, um, I mean, they don't really operate outside of the U.S., but the idea that on a global scale, most people really are are on mobile. They really want to make this something that is easy to use on a phone, but can be defined in a lot of ways, and especially by regulators, as a game. And the one thing, too, that stands out on the gamified thing is... um, confetti. They had, at one point, when you made a trade, it would rain confetti on the app. And that just became a huge talking point for regulators. Every time they were criticized, they would talk about this confetti and how that made it addictive and compared it to slot machines in Vegas. And Robin had pretty quickly took that down and said, okay, I guess we'll get rid of the confetti if it's causing us issues. And they, they really push back on that. Every time someone mentions the confetti, they like to say, oh, well, by the way, we took the confetti down. It doesn't exist anymore. But yeah, I mean, it's two sides of this argument. You hear it all the time, but they've got a point that you want to make it accessible and easy to use. But regulators really, really have chafed at that. Interesting. So there, there's the side of, hey, you guys are just old fuddy-duddies. This is normal. This is how every app works. Every app maker wants you to use their app a lot, as much as possible. And so we're making it fun and intuitive. And the regulators are going, yeah, but when there's a lot of money on the line and people don't understand what they're doing, that's not okay. That's exactly it. The other one that that stands out is um, Warren Buffett and, and Charlie Munger. And Charlie Munger in particular mentioned Robinhood by name and talked about it compared it to gambling, really, and and the same thing we were talking about with slot machines. And they put out a statement that really was that in a nutshell, what you just mentioned, sort of the old guard. You guys don't get it, and we are trying to, to make Wall Street fair and to make it accessible to the average person. They really have taken that, and this is probably an overused term, but the moving fast and breaking things approach of, of breaking the rules and then, you know, not really asking for permission, asking for forgiveness and building something that people want to use and building it so quickly and so well that uh, regulators have a hard time shutting it down or or pulling it back because users say, wait a minute, but we love this product. So 
don't take it away from us. <laughs> so that that's really, they have taken the Silicon Valley approach versus a Wall Street approach of building things slowly and carefully. And if you look at the growth, I mean, it's worked. They have grown incredibly fast. Yeah. And I want to talk about this growth. Your reporting shows that Robinhood has some grander ambitions uh, than just being a trading platform. And you predict Robinhood will strive to be the single money app where people do all of their finances and not just banking. What do you think is Robinhood's long-term vision? Exactly that. They want to be the single money app, but really what looks and walks and talks like a bank. They've talked about 401ks, which you don't think of as a, a appealing sort of Silicon Valley product, but it works with, with your entire financial life. And they want to be the place where you spend your money, where you invest your money, where you save your money. And that is really the long-term vision for Robinhood, but for all of these apps. So companies like Affirm that you might've heard of as sort of the buy now, pay later option and more of a, a credit company in general and a lending company, They've also talked about being, I think they've used a different term, but the single money app equivalent. But there is a lot of competition to be that one, well, really one-stop shop for a fintech company. But as a consumer, you've got to wonder, how many single money apps can I have on my phone? There's really going to be one winner. So, uh, But the competition is really heating up in fintech. Yeah. So for the new investor, Maybe they're just getting into this. They're listening to this podcast going, all right, I'm, I'm interested in DIY investing. What do they need to know as a consumer to make sure they're doing the right things? So part of it is um, you know, not investing too much into risky assets and being smart about where you're putting your money and not really exposing yourself to just one sector and say you love Tesla and you you bet on the company's future, that's great. But you also, if you're putting your money into the markets for the first time, want to make sure to have, you know, a backup and some safer plans and to diversify and things that might sound less exciting. But if you're really putting a good chunk of money into the market, you got to think about the long-term bet. But the big thing you hear is just don't put in more than you would be willing to, to lose at the end of the day. Kate made it clear that diversification is a much safer bet than going all in on one company or one stock. But people are willing to overlook the risks, thanks in part to Robinhood's mobile-friendly, slightly addictive app that has the power to make them money while they sleep. And Kate warned of some of the pitfalls that come with these apps. The risks of losing money on volatile investments like single stocks, options trading, and cryptocurrency can be easily overshadowed by the excitement and gamification of a frictionless mobile experience. So to get a real feel for what draws these users in, I wanted to talk to an average Joe. And his name happened to be Tim, not Joe. Close enough. He's a 22-year-old living in Indiana who's crushing it in his career and used his newfound income to try and make even more money. He happens to be a listener of this podcast and was willing to share his personal experience with the Robinhood app. Tim, thanks so much for being on the show and sharing your story. How are you? I'm doing very well, and thank you so much for having me. So let's get into this. You started investing in the Robinhood app at what age? I believe I was 19. And you are now 22 as of today. Correct. Wow. So we're almost three years into this thing. Take us back to the moment you got excited about DIY investing. 
I believe it was at a family event. Several of my brothers had already gotten into it at that point. All I knew at that point was that it was DIY investing, all the ads I'd seen on YouTube at that point. They were all hyping it up about how you could make so much extra money on Robinhood, how easy it was, things like that. So the allure of it was how easy it was and how much money I could make on it. It, it felt like a get-rich-quick scheme. And in, in some cases, you had the success stories where it was. But for me, it was a very different experience. I got into it, and I, I started to see a lot of interesting things arise. I didn't go crash and burn, but I didn't get what I thought I was going to get out of it. Mm. Did you feel like, all right, I'm, I'm just going to make a quick buck and then I'll be done? Or was this something that you thought, this is going to be a new hobby for me? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I really thought this, uh, this was going to be my side job. Like, I'll go to work, I'll come home, and then I'll do a little bit of trading here and there, and I'll make some extra cash that way. Mm. So you download the app. How did this all start where you kind of got into it? So I downloaded the app. I didn't really do anything with it for a few days at least. Um, and then a friend of mine sent me a referral link and he said, sign up under this and get a free stock or something like that. So I, I signed up then. Uh, and then I actually ended up trading that free stock and got several other stocks with the, with the funds. And I did that for a while and did fairly well. I mean, out of the $2 stock that I originally got, I r- rose it up to $10 there. I was like, all right, I got this figured out. And that's when I started investing my own hard-earned money into it. And that's where some of the things started to come to light. So you turned $2 into $10 and you thought, I'm a pro. Let's do this. Uh, pretty on. much, yeah. And that's kind of what the app itself made you feel like. It, when you look at the app itself, there's all kinds of charts you can get. There's these little news snippets of what all the elites are doing, what that person said that affects this stock and that stock, that kind of thing. So you're looking at all these charts and graphs and you're thinking, oh, I, I got this. I understand this. I'm looking at the one-day graph, the whole history of the company graph, that kind of thing. But it's really kind of deceiving because you think you know what's going on, but you really don't understand what's affecting the ups and downs in the graphs that you're looking at. So a lot of times what people will do, and I did this, is I bought into a lot of these things like, oh, I, like they're going down, they're going to come back up for sure. Just because of what I read on Robinhood, I was like, oh, it, it's coming back up for sure. And I'd buy into it. And time after time, it felt like I was losing money. I didn't lose much. I only put in $50 at first. But then I did make it a slight gain the one day, and I decided, you know what, I'm going to throw 50 more dollars in. And it kind of progressed from there like that. Mm. What was the total amount of money you sunk into this? $350. And what was your return on that 350? Well, as of now, my account stands at $316.21. And it was down to about 210 a few weeks ago. So it's come back up? A little bit. But are you still putting money into it? Where are you at now with it mentally? So at this point, even when I joined Robinhood, I was at a place where I could afford to lose a little bit of money, and it wasn't a big deal. And at this point, basically, I'm waiting for the day that it goes over 350 so I can take it all out, and I haven't lost anything then. But if it doesn't happen, then I suppose I'll take it out with a loss. So what are the factors making you go, all right, I'm done with this? Because a lot of people would say, hey, you didn't lose a lot of money, Tim. What's the harm in just keeping it there? The 
biggest thing that's getting me out of Robinhood itself was probably psychological. I would get very stressed with it when I was really getting into it. I, every chance I got at work, I'd check it. At home, I was checking constantly. So it was taking away from time with my family. And we have a six-week-old right now. So it was very important at the time for me to be deeply involved with my family. And at, at the time that I was going through all this, she wasn't born yet. But my wife was having a hard time with some of the pregnancy. And I, I wasn't present for as much of it as, as I should have been because I was so obsessed with it. I get very money-focused a lot of times. And so with this DIY investing, I was like, I'm going to make so much money on this. I'm going to get a handle on it. I'm going to, I'm going to make some extra cash this way. And so I thought, I'll just put this extra time into it. I won't do this thing around the house right now. I'm going to work on this a little bit so that I can make more money for our future. And so it did end up taking away time from work, from family. And it's just, it wasn't worth my time. Do you have an estimate on how many times you would check the app a day? Mm, a dozen to almost probably 30 more times a day. A dozen wow. would be a low end. And that would amount to a couple hours in the course oh, of at the least. day. Uh, at least, yeah. And there's always a new little news blurb they're throwing at you and a new mm-hmm. thing you should do. do. Do you think part of the gamification is them trying to lead you to, hey, there's this new stock you need to get into because you're going to have a lot of FOMO if you don't jump on this right now because everyone else is doing it? Oh, exactly. It, it's very, I've never gambled, but from what I understand about gambling, it kind of has that same draw. The adrenaline rush is still there like, oh, wow, look, I gained this or I lost that. I'll get it back next time. So yeah, the gamification of it did play a huge part in sucking me in and keeping, keeping me there for quite a while. And I was doing calculations almost every day. It felt like I was doing calculations. If it goes up this much, I'll make this much money. And I constantly was making those calculations in my head while I was driving around to do my sales calls throughout the day, just sitting in my office, things like that. I, it really got to me mentally. So Robin Hood was living rent-free in your head? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Wow. So this was your own decisions, but do you feel like there was pieces that you didn't, weren't aware of when it comes to Robin Hood? Yes, there was pieces that I wasn't aware of. From what I had understood, it was a a great do-it-yourself investing app. And for the most part, it does fulfill those promises. But there is a lot of things in there that are just not explained very well. So it's very easy to fall into these traps where you think this stock is going to be good, but because they don't really provide a very good history on the stock itself, like what the company does, how they integrate with society, things like that, you don't get the full story on Robinhood. You don't get to see what's the likelihood that the company is going to survive. I mean, there's none of that analysis on there. Mm-hmm. So they just give you enough information to, to wet your whistle, to get you excited to start making some trades. Yeah, pretty much. That would be a good way of describing it. Tim's story is a great example of how the pressure to trade mixed with a lack of understanding can lead to some poor financial decisions. And that pressure comes partially from Robinhood's strategy to send push notifications whenever a share price changes significantly. Those pings and dings from the app not only cause a dopamine rush, but also a sense of FOMO around making trades at the right time. And I know some of you are out there thinking, but Tim didn't know what he was doing. It'll be different for me. And you know what? You might be right. But remember, when Tim started trading on Robinhood, he thought he knew what he was doing. 
And luckily for him, he stepped back off that ledge before he got hurt. In the middle of this recording, Tim sent a text to our producer letting us know that he has pulled out all of his funds from Robinhood. But not everyone gets out before it's too late. Investing apps can turn into a Pandora's box for young people especially, who can now make huge financial decisions without any oversight. You may have heard the news back in June 2020 from CNN, The New York Times, Forbes, and more about Alex Kearns. He was the 20-year-old college student who committed suicide after thinking he lost hundreds of thousands of dollars on the Robin Hood app. According to a wrongful death suit filed by his family, Alex, who had bought and sold options on the app, was mistakenly notified by Robinhood that he had an apparent negative balance of $730,000 on his account. Hours later, he received another message from Robinhood telling him that he needed to take, quote, immediate action and settle up on $170,000 of the debt. Alex tried contacting Robinhood's customer support, but only received an automated email in response. The next day, thinking that he was nearly a million dollars in debt and had ruined his life, sadly decided to take his life. In the suicide note that he left, he asked, how was a 20-year-old with no income able to get assigned almost a million dollars worth of leverage? What's extra sad about the situation is that the massive negative balance Alex thought he owed was most likely an error since Alex was trading options, not stocks. That negative $730,000 was likely a temporary number that prematurely reflected on his balance before his account had settled. Tragedies like this, while rare, don't have to happen. Simply put, companies like Robinhood need to provide better education to amateur investors and real people in customer service to talk to when those investors are panicked or confused. So when it comes to DIY investing, it really comes down to the why. That means you. You've got to get educated if you're going to dabble in the investing world on your own. And it can be hard to know who to trust out there when it comes to learning about investing. Maybe it's your buddy from college telling you to get in on a single stock. Or maybe it's a thread on Reddit. Or even worse, a TikTok influencer selling you on a course on how to get rich from day trading. I don't love those options. Luckily, there are some good people out there looking out for investors and educating them on what they need to know. One of those people is Jerry Walsh. She's the Senior Vice President of Investor Education at FINRA, which stands for the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. Jerry's also the president of FINRA's Investor Education Foundation, whose goal is to educate and protect investors and, quote, foster financial capability for all Americans, especially underserved audiences. Heck yeah. One of the ways they protect investors is by finding companies for harming and misleading consumers. And that's exactly what they did to Robinhood in June of 2021, where they ordered Robinhood to pay $70 million for, quote, systemic supervisory failures and significant harm suffered by millions of customers. That $70 million fine is the largest financial penalty ever ordered by FINRA. So I spoke to Jerry over at FINRA about how FINRA is looking out for your wallet and what you can do to protect yourself. Jerry, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We've got to start with this question because it's the one everyone is asking. What is FINRA? FINRA stands for the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. And we are a non-governmental regulator of the securities industry. Now, what does that mean? 
We oversee the firms and the individuals that sell stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and other types of investments to investors in the United States. We're not part of the federal government, although we are ourselves overseen by the Securities and Exchange Commission, and we're empowered by Congress to protect investors and to assure market integrity. Wow, that's a big job. It is a big job. I mean, you are, you are kind of policing some of the top dogs out there in the economy. We are, and and we take our job very seriously because, you know, retail investors, mom and pop, Main Street investors, those are the people that we think about every day when we are uh, carrying out our mission. Although one of the things that uh, people should know is that most of the Brokers out there are hardworking, honest individuals who are looking out for the best interest of their customers. What we do is make sure that the few bad apples that are out there are taken to task. And we write the rules that govern their behavior. We are able to examine their books, their records, their activities to make sure that they're complying with those rules. And then we can take enforcement action against them when they run afoul of the rules. So uh, needless to say, I want FINRA on my good side. I don't want them <laughs> knocking you're... on my door saying, let's see the books, man. <laughs> I hear you. So let's, let's get into this. There's been a lot of talk and research about Robinhood. And a lot of investors are confused about the various fees they, they pay for investing. Your research found uh, in 2019, nearly one-third of investors believe they do not pay any fees or expenses at all for their investment accounts, or they don't know how much they're paying. What's going on there with fees? Why are people so unaware? Well, I think it's easy to blow through terms and conditions really quickly, right? All of us who sign up for apps, I'm probably the one nerd that actually takes the time to read every single You read the fine print. Jerry, you're the poster child for this podcast. I love it. I have to. I have to. It's kind of my job. I've made it my life mission. But, you know, the easier it is to engage in any activity, the easier it is for your brain to switch into this mode of, I've got it. I know what I'm doing. I'm not going to worry. You know, there's been some look at whether just the the changing form of of cash is causing people to make decisions that they wouldn't otherwise make, right? You sometimes just don't really think about what's happening in your account and how much you're actually spending and how much you still have left. And so you do have to come back to basics. It's really important that you think about for any investment— what does it cost? How does it work? What can go wrong? Right? It's really those three simple questions. And investing always costs something. Even if you have a zero commission account and you're purchasing a security with no commission whatsoever, it may be that you're not getting the best price, right? It may be that there are other fees that apply to the account. With zero commission trading, it's often the case that there's only a limited number of securities that you can buy with zero commission, but that other products do have commissions. Some of those commissions you pay out of your pocket. Some of those commissions are actually built into the product, 
So there's no such thing as a free lunch. Absolutely you not. You got to read the fine print. Absolutely. I've seen some estimates. I think it was pre-pandemic. Robinhood had about 10 million accounts. And as the second quarter of 2021 hit, they had over 30 million accounts. So they've seen exponential growth with their user base. And with that dramatic growth has come some dramatic problems. And, uh, you know, FINRA announced in June that it issued the largest fine ever against Robinhood, $70 million total, a big chunk of that money going towards restitution, towards people who were hurt financially by Robinhood's practices. So what were some of the findings FINRA found in levying this fine? Well, the first finding on the list was uh, false and misleading statements to customers. And that is a big no-no in the securities industry. And what we were seeing is that you know, customers were being misled about the level of the account. Robinhood had Robinhood Instant and Robinhood Gold. And some of the marketing materials for Robinhood Gold made it sound like the only way that you could trade on margin was to have a gold account. But that wasn't true. And then there was separately an issue with the Robinhood Gold customers. There was a statement made that they could turn off margin in their account. Margin is where you're borrowing money to, you know, in in theory, magnify your gains, but it can also help you magnify your losses. And so a lot of investors don't want to use margin. And so they thought that they could toggle it off and, you know, which they could, but if they were engaged in these option spread transactions, in fact, they were triggering margin even when they thought that it was something that they had turned off. And, And, you know, that was one of the things that happened Uh, to a young man uh, who ended up taking his life because he thought that he had incurred um, significant losses in his account. Um, There were a number of things, and that was just in that one bucket. But there was also an issue related to approval of accounts for options trading. And basically, Robinhood had it set up in such a way that if you were a 20-year-old, you could say that you had been trading options for three years, which, you know, you had to be 18 to open an account. So if you were 20, you couldn't have been trading options for three years. But you could figure out, like, how to get yourself approved for an options account with relatively low friction. And that was something that was a significant cause of restitution back to customers. And there were other issues. There were outages, you know, failure to have a business continuity plan, adequate to the needs of the business, uh, a variety of other factors. Mm. Yeah, well, with the options trading, I heard, and you can verify if this is true, it was basically an AI bot that approved you to do this options trading instead of a real person with some real supervision verifying this information. Correct. And there wasn't adequate supervision of the bot, of the algorithm. And that was something that we called out in the uh, settlement document. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the story of Alex Kearns, the young 20-year-old man who took his life because he thought he owed, he had a negative balance of over $730,000. And this was the saddest part. In his suicide note, he wrote, how was a 20-year-old with no income able to get assigned almost a million dollars worth of leverage? What can we do, what can FINRA do uh, to prevent this tragedy from happening again? It's really important to focus on educating investors. And, you know, FINRA is monitoring firms, uh, but it's really important 
when you have a complaint or a concern about your account, reaching out to the firm is often a good way to get resolution in the in the tragic case of Alex Kearns. It didn't help. Call a regulator. Uh, call us. We have a helpline that people can call. It's toll-free, 844-57-HELPS, H-E-L-P-S. That's 844-574-3577. But make sure you understand the strategies that you are engaging in. And, you know, one of the things that we find Robinhood for was the misleading nature of its disclosures to customers. So, the amount, the $700,000 plus that was in the red on Alex Kearns' account, it was actually a lot less. It was an option spread transaction where it wasn't completely done with. Um, but that was also part of what we find Robinhood for, was the way that they said that they would cover some of these options transactions and whether you know they would take on the assignment for the customer. If you're engaging in those kinds of strategies, they might look easy but they're not necessarily easy transactions. Yeah, a lot of of optimists out there hoping that they're going to win big. And unfortunately, we see some really sad stories where they don't, but you don't really hear about those. Those aren't the ones that you brag about on Reddit threads. It isn't limited to any one firm, too. So it's really important to know that, you know, the, the, the kinds of behavioral nudges that, an investor might experience on one platform can readily be available on other platforms. And your organization obviously is trying to help a lot of these new investors understand what they're putting their money into. So talk about some of the results of your research and a new initiative that you guys uh, rolled out to educate novice investors. Well, we know that across the board, knowledge of investing is low. We have a a 10 question assessment of investment knowledge, and we find that very few investors are able to pass that assessment. When you ask people, how good do you think you are at investing or how much do you think you know, people will say, oh, I know a lot. I've got all this knowledge. But then when you test it, they actually don't. And so that's a real concern for regulators and for people who care about consumers the way we do. Wow. So what advice would you give to someone who maybe is thinking about getting into DIY investing? What do they need to know? What do they need to do before they go into this? The most important thing is to make sure that you're dealing with a licensed professional if you're working with a professional, but if you're DIY with a registered firm, and you can do that by going to BrokerCheck. Get Get up to speed on the basics. We have a tool, uh, a series of courses. Um, they're they're very short, you know, three to five minute uh, modules where you can learn about key investing concepts. Um, it's always a good idea to step back and think rationally about your ability to absorb losses. What are your goals? How much risk can you take to achieve those goals? Um, How much can you afford to lose? Ask yourself that way. Ask yourself what can go wrong. And then do your best to avoid following the crowd. That's really good. Well, Jerry, I, I love what you guys are doing at FINRA to help investors, consumers out there make better decisions with their money. And I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. 
Jerry and the team at FINRA work hard day in and day out to educate investors and protect consumers. But it can be hard to protect people from themselves, especially when they start to dream in dollar signs. Let's be real. People are flocking to these investing apps because they see it as a fast track to get rich. They want to become millionaires and they fall into the trap of believing that this is a shortcut to make their financial dreams come true. But in reality, one of the biggest myths about millionaires is that they take big risks with their money on things like Robinhood to build their wealth. Our team at Ramsey did the largest research study ever done on millionaires. And after talking to over 10,000 millionaires, we found that exactly zero said that single stocks were one of their top three wealth contributing factors. That's right. Zero. Zip. Zilch. In fact, 80% of those 10,000 millionaires we interviewed said they reached their million-dollar net worth through things like their employer-sponsored retirement plan or a 401k, and that they got there over time after years of hard work and consistently investing into their retirement accounts. I know, not as sexy as I hoped either. Turns out, slow and steady wins the race. Long-term investing beats short-term thinking because you're investing in less risky options that grow over time instead of investing in stocks and only making money if you sell at the perfect moment. Let's get tactical here. Hang with me. Before you ever decide to dabble in single stocks or DIY investing apps, we recommend you do a few things first. For starters, make sure you pay off all of your consumer debt and have a fully funded emergency fund of three to six months of expenses. At that point, you should start investing 15% of your gross income in less risky investments like growth stock mutual funds inside of a tax-advantaged retirement account like a 401k or Roth IRA. We also recommend diversifying your portfolio even more by dividing your investments evenly across four different types of mutual funds. Growth and income funds, growth funds, aggressive growth funds, and international funds. Then, and only then, should you use some fun money, blow money, entertainment money, whatever you want to call it, to dabble in the online casino known as Robinhood. Investing can be confusing and a little overwhelming, which is why it's always good to consult the advice of an investing pro like a financial advisor. No matter what you do, make sure you understand what you're putting your money into and have a long-term mindset when it comes to building wealth. I told you slow and steady wins the race. And unfortunately, investing apps can be a lot more hairy than tortoisey. Whether you're investing for a down payment on a house or for retirement, you need to have a plan for your investments to know if you're on track to hit your goal. And we've got a free investing calculator you can use that'll show you how much your money could grow over time. You just enter the amount you've invested or plan on investing, the length of time you plan on letting that grow, and your expected annual rate of return. It's that easy. Play around with the numbers and get excited about the possibilities. To get a link to our free investment calculator, text FINEPRINT10 to 33789. That's FINEPRINT followed by the numeral 10, all one word, no spaces, to 33789. Or just use the link in the show notes. Well, that's a wrap on season one of The Fine Print. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to this season as much as we've enjoyed creating it. We're going to take some time off from the show as we dig into what topics to cover next that affect you and your financial future. If you have any suggestions or comments about the Fine Print Podcast or have any story ideas for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. And if you've been impacted by a money trap, a scam, a sketchy company, or a crappy product, let us know. We want to hear about that too. You can email us at thefineprint at ramseysolutions.com or call 855-855-5776 and leave a voicemail. That's 
1-800-273-5776. You've been listening to The Fine Print. If you've enjoyed it, subscribe, follow, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts and share it with a friend who might be doing a little too much DIY. Our show is produced by Chris Wright, Eric Cheslevich, and Chris Dean. Our associate producer is Amanda Rogers. This episode was engineered and mixed by Will Rudder. Special thanks to Tom Booker and Andy Barton for help with writing and research. Our executive producer is Blake Thompson. I'm George Camel, and remember, Robin Hood is like the fast food of the investing world. Sure, it's designed for convenience, but it could leave you with indigestion and regret. Fine print listeners, we want to hear from you. Yeah, you. If you've got a story of falling for a money trap, believing a money myth, or not reading the fine print, give us a call and tell us all about it. You can call us at 855-855-5776. That's 855-855-5776. Or you can always email us at thefineprint at ramseysolutions.com. And to make life easy for you, we've got all that info in the episode show notes.